You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and this is Valerie Koo, and I'm here with episode 22 of So You Want to Be a Writer, and I am sitting directly across from Alison Tate. Now, usually, Alison is in her lovely place on the south coast of New South Wales, and I'm usually in either Sydney or Melbourne, but we're actually together today, so this is a little bit strange being able to see you in real life, Alison. It's very strange, Val. <laughs> I'm looking at you across the microphone and thinking that we should probably be doing a duet or something like that at this point. Yeah, we but could, it's lovely to see you. We could be like backup singers. We are, well, clearly we could, if only we could harmonise. So why don't you tell everyone why you're here? Ah, yes. Well, I came up to Sydney to the Big Smoke uh, yesterday to do a presentation um, with my publisher, Ashet, um, about my book, The Mapmaker Chronicles. And so I gave a little talk to everyone at Ashet about what it's all about and where the idea came from and it was very exciting I and I received a proof copy in my hands. Looks so fantastic. It's very exciting. I have an actual book um, to take home to read to my youngest son because he didn't want me to read the manuscripts because it wasn't a real book. Right. He only likes real books. Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, so that's what I was doing and so I had a, I've had a wonderful, wonderful trip. It's been really exciting. So the book, Mapmaker Chronicles, is out when again? Um, the first book, Race to the End of the World, is coming out on the 14th of October. And so is it normal to do a presentation to the, what was it, the sales and marketing people? Who were they? It was the sales and marketing people. It was the, um, they have a sales conference every six months and they, um, it, I think, I mean, I've never done one before for a book that I've had, so I was quite excited. It was a new experience. I was a little bit nervous. Um, but yes, it, it's a basically to introduce you to the sales team as an author to introduce your book to them through your eyes, why you wrote it, where the idea came from, that sort of thing. Um, and just, yeah, I think it's like, a, it's like a team building exercise. And it was very exciting for me. They are so enthusiastic and so excited about the book that it was, for me, so gratifying. I, I Yeah, I was quite overwhelmed by it. And of course, it's one of those things that these are the people who are actually going to be convincing booksellers and bookstores to buy the book and and stock it so it's important for them to understand what the book is about who it's going to reach and all that kind of thing that's right and i, I had to have a bit of a discussion about where it might fit on a top like on the bookshelf so mm. to speak where at what end of the of the eight like what age group all those sorts of different things um and yeah i think i i, I think there's a huge value in them meeting the author and putting a face to the book because they they get a sense of who you are as a person um, and, and I mean, I was just so thrilled to meet them all and they, um, we had a little bit of a chat and it was just, yeah, it was a really great experience. I had never thought about this aspect of writing a book before and this notion of it actually going out. People were coming up to me and saying, I've read your book, I loved it. And I was like, oh my God, people are reading it 
okay. I hadn't really thought about that. Do you know what I mean? Well, in fact, they are your biggest advocates because, as I said, yeah, they're the ones who are going to d- determine the distribution in That's a sense. Right. I remember with my book, Power Stories, which is a business book, uh, my publisher was based is based in Melbourne and I am was based in Sydney at the time. And so I did my presentation by video. Oh. And so just because it was not possible for me to meet the sales and marketing team at a you know, specified time in person, I recorded a little video to explain what the book was about, who was likely to buy it, where I see it on the bookshelves and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's a useful thing to do, even if, you can't, if you're not in the same city, perhaps do a little video for the sales and marketing team so that they can really buy into what your book is about. Yes. But anyway, apart from that, um, anything else happening? With me or in the writing world in general? With you. With me. Uh, no, I'm sitting here, which is very <laughs> exciting. So we're recording this in the uh, offices of the Australian Writers' Centre. And I must say, listeners, uh, Alison is very brave because she's actually going to come to my place, my home tonight, <laughs> and um, meet my three dogs and two cats and um, experience the bedlam that is otherwise known as Shea Valerie. So that's what's happening in my world. I'm going to have a house guest. Oh, exciting. But how? about the world of writing, publishing and blogging, Al? Well, I came across a, a little blog um, called, it's on uh, menural.com, I think is how you would say it, and it's an interesting post. It's what not to say when you're a writer and what to say instead. And it's a little bit about how you, about your attitude and about how you present yourself to the world and to other people. So a couple of the examples that they've given are things like, asking, can I do X in my manuscript? And of course, the answer to that is, well, it's your manuscript. Can you? (laughs) Is that what you want to do? So instead of saying to somebody, do you reckon I can do X in my manuscript? You say, I have done this. Does it work? And Mm. get someone to read it on that basis. Mm. Or another one is, of course, that, and this is something I feel every writer goes through is the general I suck conversation (laughs) which I have on a regular basis with myself Um, and of course the I suck is really not getting anywhere anywhere sorry anybody anywhere Mm, doesn't do anyone any favors no it doesn't so instead of saying that say I'm learning because I think every time that you do a draft every time that you try something different it's it's all grist to the mill and it's all very very helpful Um, And, of course, there's always the never, ever say, I quit. Yeah. Which, of course, everybody does and we all throw our manuscripts at the wall and, you know, tear our hair out and I'm never doing this again. But in actual fact, probably what you really just need is a break. You need to walk away from whatever you're doing and come back. But it's an interesting little list and I think it's worth a read because I I think most writers will recognise themselves in there saying something like that at some point. Absolutely. And one that I hear a lot that I wish people would stop saying is, um, uh, I just need someone to make me write. What, stand over you with a whip? Is that, is that I, it? It's bizarre. And, um, you know, I just need the motivation. I just need someone to be accountable to. And I kind of think, well, that is maybe you need a life coach or something. It's you certainly. It's not necessarily a writing mentor or a writing coach, but perhaps a life coach to help you figure out why you don't have, why you can't motivate yourself. Well, and also I think if we go back to that conversation that I had with Mark Dappen when I interviewed him for our podcast recently, um, he kind of said, if you really want to write, you'll write. Mm. And if you're not writing, if you're finding a million excuses for writing, 
well, maybe you should be trying something different. That's yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, you know, I keep saying that I want to, you know, star in a musical or, or sing in a rock band, and if I really wanted to do it, I'd actually practice. You'd be out there doing it. <laughs> you would, you'd be fronting a band every Friday night. Exactly. Yeah. I'd be the lead in Les Mis. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you can give us a word delusional. That one day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I came across um, a uh, blog post this week um, on Ken Levine's blog, and it's called "That's My Name, Don't Wear It Out." And it's actually about the fact that when you watch television shows or you know movies, the the, the you, the name of the character is actually overused compared to what you would normally say in real life. So if you're watching Law and Order, they often refer to, hey, Liv, are you doing this? Elliot, have you have, have you caught the um, criminal yet? And that is because, you know, people need to know who's talking and who you're referring to because when the shot is on that person and there's lots of other people in the room, um, the audience doesn't necessarily know who that particular person is talking to unless right. that person is also in the same shot. Um, but basically this post is saying that these um, first names are used a lot and that's why it's called That's My Name, Don't Wear It Out. But what I thought was what it sparked in me was, you know, where do we get our names from? Where do we, how do we choose names of our characters, whether they are in a television or a series or in a book or wherever? Where did you get your names from, from the book that's about to come out? Um, this is really, it's actually a really interesting question, that because, um, because my map makers is set in a mythical kind of fantasy world, um, I needed to come up with names that would fit the basic uh, feel of the mm. world but not necessarily be modern, not necessarily be. So what I did was I, I picked out the main attribute of each character and then I went searching for meanings of names that meant that, that then would work together in sort of in my world that I was creating. Um, but I had to name, you know, kingdoms and I had to name, <laughs> I had to name worlds and I found I actually found that naming a kingdom is really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. You've kind of got to... Um, How did you narrow it down? Ah, uh, look, uh, the the main kingdom um, where all uh, where my main characters are from is called Verdania. And Verdania took me a really long time to come up with. And I actually crowdsourced it in the end. Wow. I said, I'm naming... I was on Facebook one night, randomly as I am, and I'm like, I'm naming a kingdom. If you were naming a place that was green and lush, what would you call it? And one of my friends... Kate, who's very clever, came back with Vidanya. I was like, yes, that's it. Yeah, I like and it. And I went um, from there. But no, it is really hard. Naming countries and, and, um, and of course, you have, I have kings. Kings have to have different sounding names to, mm. to everybody else. And, um, yeah, so it's not easy. So what I generally do, and, and my son finds this hilarious, is that when I'm writing, if I can't think of a name for somebody, I just call them Fred every single time. So if I'm <laughs> writing and a character appears and I can't think of the name at the time, that character becomes Fred until I come back later and come up with the correct name for Fred. And christen him with and, his and name. And him yes. with his name. And, um, but unfortunately what can happen there is that I sometimes end up with two or three Freds in the same, oh. <laughs> in the same manuscript and then trying to remember who's who as I go through is not so easy. But, yeah, so when we, we're actually getting a puppy soon and I really oh. wanted to call the puppy Fred. Oh. 
but my son would absolutely was not going to let me do that because he felt like the it was just the name you have when you're not having a name. Oh, the Clayton's <laughs> name. The Clayton's oh name. no. <laughs> I I remember doing some work in the script department of Water Rats um, once, which you know you may remember was the cop show that yes. um, was out with Catherine McClements and um, Colin Friels. Uh, and uh, I was talking to one of the script consultants and he needed to name the character that um, replaced Colin Frills, uh, replaced by Steve Bisley. And he was a detective, he was a tough cop, and um, he needed a good name for that character. And um, his nephew, so the script consultant's nephew's name, was Jack Christie. And Jack's quite the protagonist's name, as you know. Absolutely. So many um, main characters are called Jack. So he decided to name Steve Bisley's character Jack Christie. Um, but his nephew's like two or three years old and his nephew watched the, the first episode of Water Rats where um, Jack Christie's name was mentioned and, in, and, and just was staring at the television, heard his name being called of this, you know, middle-aged uh, guy, <laughs> tough guy playing a cop and immediately burst into tears. Oh, you stole my name. I know, <laughs> poor little thing. Um, but this, let's move on to uh, another link that I found this week. In the UK, they've done a, um, and we'll put the link in the show notes, it's about the future of libraries and it's done by the local government association in the UK. And maybe this is something that's a very, that's very, uh, you know, very much pertaining to UK culture. But um, the report has um, looked into the future of libraries and one of the things that they have said is that in the future, library services may actually be delivered in non-traditional library buildings such as the local pub. Yay! What do you think of that? I think it's an awesome idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for it. Now, I think it's one of those things that um, I was actually talking to a friend of mine yesterday who was had had this very idea. She feels that there needs to be book pubs. Because as she said, like a lot of people will sort of go, like, well, it's a place to go. There's always a book there, isn't there? So if you go out by yourself, you know that you can go and have a quiet beer. You could read a book if you don't run into anyone to talk to and you're not going to feel like a total loser. You're not sitting there drinking a right. beer or watching Voxtel. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a bit of a different vibe. And I I, um, I have to say I found the, the idea very attractive. Yeah. Um, I thought the book pub idea was a good one. But like I, I think that libraries in the future are going to be really, really important. Um, mm. And I think it's important that they go, that they do go to people where people are because I think that that's a great way to bring new people into library services. We have down on the, obviously on the south coast, we have a lot of mobile library services. They do a fantastic job. They have a book bus and it um, it goes out to all the coastal areas, you know, for people who can't get to the main library. Right. Um, and they go, it goes out every week and they all swap their books over and come back. And it's, it's. Um, I, I think, I, I love the idea of that sort of thing. I think taking books to people is a brilliant thing. Yeah, what a great idea. Mm. A mobile, I mean, I've never been to a mobile library, but I remember sitting in Bryant Park once, which is the park, that's sort of in the middle of New York and they have just they just have shelves in the park yeah. um, and like a park library so you can you know sit there at lunchtime read a book pop it back and um, yeah it's a great idea should be more of it so let's move on to our book a writing book this week and I've picked up a book at the bookshop called posh and other language myths and it's the tagline is the fascinating stories we tell about the words we use by Michael 
Quinian. And I just think it's interesting. It's one of those books that you dip into, kind of arranged like a dictionary, except with um, much longer explanations um, than the dictionary. And it has um, explanations for origins like of, of words like chanda <laughs> and doozy. And, um, you know, the full Monty. And the interesting thing about the word posh, which, we, as we know, kind of means elegant or snobby or, you know, posh from the upper classes. And so many people say that it comes from um, P&O, you know, the cruise ship company, uh, referring to port out starboard home. And we've heard this many, many times. I'm sure you've heard that as well. Yeah. Well, the book says the trouble is there's absolutely no evidence for it. And P&O flatly denies any such term existed. It's just a legend, although a very persistent one. So it, this is one of those books that, you know, when you're a little bit bored or you need a little break from your writing or whatever, you can just dip into it and read a couple of the entries because, you know, you've, I'm sure you've always wanted to know where Chanda comes from. Oh, yeah? absolutely. <laughs> it's been at the top of my mind for a long time, Val. <laughs> A very long time. What is um, So what's been happening in the world of blogging this week? Well, I thought that we might have a little talk about the blogging meme because I found myself participating in a blogging meme for the first time in several years oh. uh, this week. And the only real reason that I did it was because I was tagged in it by my sister, Maxabella. Um, so, you know, she's like family to me, so it's very hard to resist <laughs> her. Um, but it was the the meme is why I write, and there's a lot of bloggers and authors taking part in it, and they're writing a post about why they write, and then they tag three other people to do the post. Um, it's like then, a chain letter. It's like a chain letter, and you don't want to break the chain because you know <laughs> anything could happen. But what the reason I found it so interesting is that um, I actually had never really thought about this before. Why you write? Why. I've never thought about why I write. Oh. I just do. Do you know what I mean? Like okay. it's something that I've just always done, and um, and obviously I've I've it's been my job on some level or another for a really long time. But I have never thought about why I do it. And I think that um, there's a lot of very interesting uh, answers to that question within this blog meme. Like everybody's got different reasons for why yes. they do things, right? So I, I sort of like, I really wanted to give a good answer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have like a, I write because I am kind of <laughs> thing. But I, I, because I hadn't really thought about it, I had to make it up as I went along. And at the end of the day, I write because it's my job, which I, makes me very, very lucky. Yes. Um, but I also write because it's my hobby. Yes. It's kind of the thing I do best and the thing I like most. It's also, if I have five minutes in a day, it's how I prefer to spend my time. Mm -hmm. So I realised at the end of all that that I probably just need to get out more because <laughs> <laughs> all I seem to do is, why do I write? Because it's all I seem to do except, you know, <laughs> hang out with my kids and stuff. And the other question in it that I found very interesting was, um, how does my writing differ to others of its genre? Now, oh. personally, I found that to be a very strange question, only because the only answer is because it's mine. Yes. I mean, is that not, I mean, I, yeah, I found that to be a really interesting question. I, I've been reading other people's responses to that because it's, you know, obviously people are not quite as black and white as I am about things, but anyway. Um, and then there's a little bit about, you know, your writing process and things like that. So I've tagged um, some fabulous people to do with this, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with. Natasha Lester, Claire Scobie, and Lisa Heidke, who are all authors. 
and um, all Australian writers, all Australian presenters. writers, center presenters, authors who blog. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what they come up with. But if you want to have a look at all the um, responses to that particular meme, um, you can you'll find them at maxabellaloves.blogspot.com. Um, she has a linky running there that you can check out, and it's really worth having a look. I just love looking at why people do things. It's really interesting way more interesting than my answer. Uh, and if any listeners decide to write a post on why you write, email it to us. We would love to see your reasons why. We would. I'd love to. Yeah. Send, write it on your blog and send us the link yeah. so that we can have a look. Send it to podcast at writerscentre.com.au. Now, with our writer in residence this week, it's something a little bit different. So usually we interview an author, but, you know, we sometimes we interview journalists and columnists and that sort of thing. But this week we're interviewing the founder of Newsmodo. And I know that this is going to be really interesting for many of our listeners, particularly those who are freelance feature writers, because Newsmodo is a network of freelance journalists. There are over 14,000 across the globe, but this is a Melbourne-based uh, company. And what Newsmodo does, it's kind of like the middle person, middle man, middle person, middle woman, um, for publishers who are looking for certain stories and the journalists who can subsequently provide those stories. Um, a particularly interesting thing that the founder, Raquel Eberly, mentioned to me was that when they started um, about a year ago or so, most of their clients were publishers, but now 80% of their clients, so they were 100% of their clients were publishers, but now 80% of their clients are brands. So not only are publishers looking for, you know, content in certain things, particularly if, you know, news is broken and they need a journalist on the ground to cover a particular issue, but brands are looking for a whole host of writers and a lot of writers are getting um, jobs this way. So let's have a listen to our chat with Raquel. Raquel Eberly is a journalist and presenter who founded Newsmodo after more than a decade of working with Network 10. So Raquel founded Newsmodo.com, a service for freelance journalists to connect with publishers. And while it started out catering to news organisations looking for journalists to file certain stories, many of Newsmodo's clients are now brands that are looking for content. Newsmodo has already caused ripples in the world of journalism and Raquel hopes to disrupt the industry even further with this innovative service. Thanks for joining us today, Raquel. Thanks, it's my pleasure. Now, there's been a lot of talk in the industry and among writers about Newsmodo. For some of the people who aren't yet familiar with Newsmodo, can you describe what it's about? Yeah, sure. So, Newsmodo was founded back in 2012. Um, I came about the idea after seeing the dismantling of the media industry and a lot of freelancers uh, having to find new ways of uh, looking for work, particularly uh, journalists who might have originally worked in a, uh, in a more a structured environment in a full-time role. Um, we've built a network for freelancers to access job opportunities, what we would call briefs. Those briefs can be set by um, publishers, uh, newspaper editors or magazine editors, television networks. We're also increasingly finding that brands are engaging in the platform to utilize the resources that we have. And now we've got about 14,000 registered journalists worldwide. Great. And why did you decide to create it? What was your background that gave you that insight into the changes in the industry? 
Yeah, so I worked at Channel 10, uh, Network 10 News, for about a decade here in Melbourne. Uh, over that period, I saw the uh, development of the news uh, industry and certainly the silos starting to break down between digital, print, online, television, radio. Um, all of that was starting to merge in, around that period of time that I was working as a journalist. So it was a really fascinating time to be in the industry. Uh, towards the end of my tenure at Network 10, it was becoming fairly obvious that there was a dramatic change going on in the media landscape. Um, I think in 2011, uh, over 100 journalists um, were made redundant, and that was within the Network 10 um, structure alone. So that was really the catalyst for uh, what was originally my uh, iPhone application, uh, which has since been redeveloped into a global network for those freelancers who were suddenly looking for opportunity. Perhaps they were a television journalist and, um, and then all of a sudden needed to diversify in their skill sets to find uh, work op opportunities as a freelancer in different, uh, what we would call silos, media environments. Um, so we created that space for them online to build a profile and uh, exemplify some of the work that they've done previously and in essence a bit like a LinkedIn uh, user profile where an editor would be able to engage them for particular work where they felt it was uh, a suitable fit to their skill set. So you're kind of putting together people who are looking for specific news stories or content or online video or whatever with the qualified people who can provide it. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. It, it goes in a two-way uh, communication in essence. We, we allow our journalists to actually pitch their ideas as well and we have an internal editorial team now that work with journalists in helping them create their proposals for the media and then we actually help them deliver those proposals, those pitches to uh, our broad list of clients both here in Australia and overseas. Um, for an example, a journalist might have a great story idea in their local community but perhaps they don't have the means to actually um, propose that to a, a wider uh, media environment. So we help them, we give them that platform to pitch that to our list of clients, which is at over 300 uh, publishers around the country, um, and really amplify their opportunities through our network. And, and as you mentioned, the, the reverse of that is when some of our clients are looking for a particular story, perhaps um, it's a regional story and they're not able to send a journalist there, or maybe uh, an international story, um, we can uh, deliver that brief to the appropriate journalists by segmenting the uh, our network into fields of interest and their geographic location mm. and then deliver that brief to the appropriate journalists as an email uh, for them to respond to and uh, let us know of their availability. So do you operate as a true sort of like middleman in a sense where you are um, putting together these two parties or are you operating as a marketplace where you, you match them like RSVP and then they deal with each other or do they always have to go through you? No, we actually help facilitate the exchange. Uh, a number of our um, relationships have developed to a point where the journalists are almost working in-house with the client um, and we come to an arrangement as 
for want of a better word, almost a recruiter in that circumstance. Mm. Um, and and look, those those arrangements do take some time, and contracts would be put in place if there's a particular project. For example, one of our journalists is working on a coffee table book um, for for a client, and that's a an extensive project. It's 150 plus pages. Um, so obviously, they have a need to work and have day to day engagement and and sometimes face to face engagement um, with the clients. So it really does depend on the nature of the project that uh, the journalist or writer is being engaged on. Um, but oftentimes it's not necessary for that engagement to be there. And, and our, our members, um, and it is a free service to, to sign up to, but um, those of, uh, for those that have signed up and created a profile, they often feel that the advantage is that they don't need to have that engagement. They don't need to send an invoice after the work is done. All of that's taken care of by our network. And so you mentioned the coffee table books. Let's talk a little bit mm -hmm. more about the kinds of projects because um, the coffee table book does sound very different to, I mean, because you're called News Moto. So yeah. do you, did you initially specialise in news but now have expanded to other types of topic areas? Can you give people uh, an idea of the range of types of content they might be able to propose or write about? Yeah, look, as I mentioned, it's a fascinating time in the news industry and uh, I think every week a journalist finds, if they're a freelancer, that they're looking to diversify and then, and then evolve and develop and diversify again. When we originally uh, came up with the concept of Newsmodo, it was literally to connect news reporters and hard, hard, what we would call journalists working on a, a typical news round with, um, with editorial clients like newspapers and um, online services, news.com.au or Fairfax, for example. Um, what we've found though is the evolution of the media continues is that those journalists are now working for brands, they're working for um, publishers across multiple platforms and even for agencies that are creating content for their clients as brands. Um, so we're, we're actually connecting those journalists with all of those um, all of those streams of work opportunities now, and to answer your question, the type of work is extremely varied. Um, we've done work for uh, companies like Lenovo, as an example, which was a global brief. They were looking for uh, profiles on um, business people who used technology and entrepreneurs who used technology from each region around the world, um, and they wanted five. Uh, profiles uh, from each region. We distributed that as a global brief um, and had hundreds of fantastic pitches, proposals from journalists around the world. We were able to then collate all of those ideas, present them to the client, and then they went ahead and commissioned 20 or 30 profiles. And, and that's a really interesting example of where the same template of offering journalists availability to a um, quote-unquote news service can also be offered to uh, brands and other agencies. Mm -hmm. And I have to say there is some skepticism around uh, journalists working for brands and branded content and advertorial content. And, and from my experience, and look, it's a new world to, to many and, and I confess to me as well, but certainly um, branded content and some of the clients that we're working with 
the the integrity of the um, of the articles is second to none. Like there's some fantastic in-depth investigation going on in some of these some um, uh, online news portals that are operated by uh, bigger brands, um, and certainly fantastic entertainment as well. Can you give us some example? That Lenovo is a great example. Can you give us an example of some other brands that are doing good things in terms of publishing? Yeah, look, I, I would urge you to take a look at GE Reports. Um, now, that's a fantastic uh, website, and it's a global news portal for the industry. And you'll see on that particular platform, whilst there's uh, GE content obviously peppered through that particular news portal, there's a lot of thought leadership going on. There's a lot of industry news about not necessarily GE products, but um, revolutions in the industry and breakthroughs in technology pertaining to things like um, aviation and um, electronic vehicles and really interesting gadgety stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's, a, that's an independent portal that is not run by a publisher per se, but I can tell you what, the quality of the journalism that goes into it is, is very high. Mm. And so let's say I'm a journalist and I'm interested in pitching to Newsmoto or being part of the network. Do you have any kind of criteria or do you vet the journos in any way or do you look, are you looking mm. for a specific set of skills? So we would welcome any budding journalist to um, engage with our network. Uh, as I said, it's a free service, so uh, there's very little to no risk involved, and you can um, you can create a profile. Um, as I said, you can include links to your previous work and other things that you've done. Certainly, um, checkbox the areas of interest so that when we do get a brief, we can distribute that brief to you accurately. And if you're only interested in sport or fashion, we're not sending you something on biotechnology, for an example. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, absolutely. If a if a journalist comes on board and creates a profile, what typically happens is the vetting will take place when we get engagement from a client. So. We don't pre-vet necessarily all of our um, sign-ups. And as I said, we've got 14,000, 15,000 or something globally now. So it wouldn't be prudent of us to do that. But let's say five journalists pitch for a particular brief. Um, We would present those to the client. And in essence, the vetting would happen in that process anyway. Right. And so let's say I responded to a particular project and um, I was successful in, you know, getting it and I did the job as a journalist and I submitted my piece. You mentioned that you have an internal editorial team who would obviously look that over before um, sending it on to the client. And would I get feedback as a journalist from that editorial team saying, Actually, can you change this, this, and this? Um, or and then if it, if I did that and it was subsequently sent to the client, could the client then come back and say, "Can you change this, this, and this?" Yeah, absolutely. So in both cases, yes and yes. Um, we do try and have that editorial team there as a stopgap. So there's a QA process before we deliver content to the client. And from a client perspective, that's a real value add, particularly yeah. if they're busy working on a million other things. Um, not to have to have that first look at the at the copy in particular is a real bonus for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, to answer your question, our editorial team will take a look at things um, and flick it back to the writer if 
if they feel that it perhaps doesn't quite answer all the points in a brief, mm -hmm. um, it's on us to make sure that everything that we deliver to a client is on brief. So we, we certainly want to make sure that the first time around that it's as close to the perfect um, copy as we, we can make it. And, and to answer your second part to the question, there are frequent occasions when an editor will, um, will come back to us and say, look, this was great, but I was hoping that they could, um, you know, at this point or the other, um, can you ask the journalist or the writer to please um, um, address this? And, and we'll go through that process. We don't typically like that to be a protracted process, of course, mm. um, but we do buffer in uh, some time for, for those editorial amends if they're required. Okay, so that's an example of when I've responded to one of the projects that you've put out there. Now let's imagine that um, you've mentioned that uh, journalists can also pitch ideas, you know, to hopefully find an outlet for them. So let's say I've done that. Um, of the number of pitches that where, that you receive from journalists, some good ideas that they hope to see the light of a day, what proportion of them are successful, do you think? What proportion of them do you get picked up? The and what, and what kind of articles are they? Yeah. Sorry. The ones that are typically picked up have some element of exclusivity. Mm -hmm. uh, we're finding that the response from editorial um, departments across, particularly across the news side of things, is that if they can't, absolutely can't do it themselves, then great. They'll love to look at something that we're proposing. But if we're proposing a thought piece on climate change, um, it's very hard to propose that when their argument would be, well, we can probably do that in-house. You're not adding something that we don't already have access to. Yes. For example, if you've got a great photo of uh, an exclusive that, um, that you might have captured whilst covering a story, then you've got something of value that they don't. So it makes the pitching process obviously a lot easier. Um, we always encourage our journalists to come up with those kinds of stories that will put them in a position of... Um, authority and and a lot of the stuff that we're really getting interest in has to do with um, in-depth analysis um, material that uh, perhaps the editorial team haven't uh, had access to or haven't had the means to actually analyze properly and really deliver in the way that perhaps a journalist who might be working as a freelancer could flesh out. Would you say that you would have less interest in sort of topics like travel and lifestyle and health and that sort of thing? Look, the, I have to say that um, we've got bucket loads of travel content that as yet is yet to be placed mm. um, and that comes from 14, 15,000 journalists <laughs> around the world and every single one of them seems to be a travel journalist when they're on their next holiday or trekking <laughs> through uh, the Himalayas and we do, get, we do get a lot of that type of material um, and I know that our clients get a lot of that type of material too and mm. for whether whatever your opinion is of it or not, uh, oftentimes in a lot of these publishers' publications these days, that travel content can be sponsored content as well. Mm. So when you're going in against uh, potentially a sponsored content where the editors actually or the, the publishers actually receiving money to publish that content on a, a new resort or, um, or, or a new, I don't know, um, tour, Kentucky tour, for example, then it's pretty hard for us to go up against that. Having said that, we, we 
last month literally just placed a batch of travel content um, with one of Australia's leading national publishers um, and that was fantastic and they are looking, the door is open for that type of material. Um, we're also looking at new ways that we can expose the amount of content that we have to our clients and, and that would come along through potentially um, opening up our marketplace to uh, clients to browse and, and commission. Mm. Um, so there's a few different things that we're, we're trialing at present and we, we will be, um, we are in the process of redeveloping our, our site and our structure and some of our key messaging um, to keep up with those changes. So do journalists get a byline or, or in what instances do they get a byline and do they not? Most, nearly all of our uh, clients offer the opportunity for a byline. Um, we've had some clients uh, try and trade on that offering and we've um, knocked that right on the head. We don't deal in exploitation at Newsmodo, so we don't offer um, our journalists up for the opportunity to just write for a byline. I don't yeah. think that that's doing the industry or anyone any good. Mm -hmm. um, and typically, most of our clients actually like to have a journalist's byline because most of the writers that we engage have a, um, a bit of an acumen and, 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 a, and a, what would you call it, almost a following in the media for whatever their area of expertise is. So that adds value to the publisher who actually um, commissions that journalist, particularly for brands. We've got some um, big brands in the finance sector who are, who are regularly engaging some of our writers. And those journalists might work for BRW or, uh, I don't know, Fin Review one week and then work for the brand the next. So having that... Um, that uh, exposure is actually positive for them as well. So you've now touched on the million dollar question on everyone's lips, which would be what kind of rate of pay can people expect or, or range of rate of pay? What kind of indication can you give people on that front? Yeah, well, obviously, like I said, we don't want people writing for the opportunity to get their name put in a magazine. I don't think that that's doing anyone any favours. Mm -hmm. um, it really varies depending on where you're pitching into. I, and I say that not non plus, um, but with all respect. Let's look at it as an example. Uh, a piece of video um, recently sold for tens of thousands of dollars because of the exclusive nature of that video through our platform. An exclusive um, for, let's say, a popular women's magazine that has very few words but might have, it's the nature of the story. Let's say, I don't know, Jodie Mears crashed a car drink driving allegedly <laughs> uh, through the week. Um, you get an exclusive with Jodie Mears. I can tell you it's not going to be on the number of words that you're selling. <laughs> it's going to be on the fact that you've got that exclusive. So it is very hard and that's where our brokerage um, comes into it because it's very hard to to pinpoint an actual figure and if I could pull out a rate card and say this is our rates um, across the board, I would, I would happily do that because it would save us a lot of time and our clients but often it comes down to what the publication is and, and what the nature of the story is. Generally speaking, and uh, this probably isn't news to many of freelancers, rates range from anything from I've heard as low as I mean, I've heard some really low rates, um, 10 cents a word and, and, and south of that even, up through to a, over a dollar a word, depending on how um, the content is created and where it ends up. Some of the brands that we're working with 
um, if you're writing material that will go on the front page of their website, they're obviously going to value the words uh, value more than if it's going to end up on a bit of collateral that was used in an EDM for a day. So it really does depend on where that material lands. Um, but our journalists are really happy with the, the rates that we always, it's in our best interest to get the highest possible rate that we can. Um, and from their perspective, they're also getting exposure to opportunities where they wouldn't have had otherwise. So they love being able to receive the briefs and, um, and they know the, the rates that are being offered for each opportunity before they enter into a contractual engagement. Would there be some journalists who uh, work through you, who are freelance and who are in mm -hmm. your network, but who would work through you almost full-time or be engaged in as a high proportion of their work or their income? There are a few projects like the one I mentioned earlier with the coffee table book mm -hmm. that really do absorb a lot of time and we've actually worked out arrangements um, recently for one journalist on a six-month contract. So to answer your question, yes. Um, but again, the circumstances of every opportunity vary. Uh, we do have writers that are working on up to five articles a week for some clients and that obviously keeps them fairly busy. Mm -hmm. But we encourage all writers and journalists to get out there and not just through our platform but through other means and going to conferences and however they feel is the best way to to expose themselves to opportunity to really um, to follow that, those opportunities mm. through. And presumably, of course, since you're facilitating the relationship and the arrangement, you you gain revenue because you put some kind of fee on top of what you pay the journalists. That is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And just tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey in terms of when you started. You got this idea, you left, left Channel 10, you thought um, the industry is changing. This is, I'm going to start Newsmodo. How did it start? Did you fund it yourself? Did you get, did you get some um, investment? Yeah. How did it actually become reality? So I was tinkering away on an iPhone app that was originally called NewsMe. And that was something that I came up with after going out to plenty of news stories as a television reporter and paying some person on the street a few hundred bucks or $1,500 for a video that they might have shot on their iPhone. And I kept on going to all these. I was at a siege one day and I'd been there from about 7 a.m. to about 8 p.m. And, um, you know, it was cold, it was miserable, all that sort of stuff. And one guy who shot 11 seconds worth of footage ended up making 1500 a lot of money, whatever the figure was on that particular day for selling a little bit of iPhone footage. So I created an iPhone app um, that allowed anybody to shoot or uh, capture something that they felt was newsworthy and upload that to a website that could be browsed as a marketplace for newsworthy content. Mm -hmm. um, but the real breakthrough happened for me uh, when I came in uh, touch with uh, a man by the name of Larry Kesselman, who's the founder of Dodo, mm -hmm. um, which he has recently sold uh, to the M2 group for over $200 million. Mm -hmm. um, Larry's been uh, an incredible visionary over his career and certainly saw the merit in what I had proposed to him through uh, showing him that, that iPhone app at the time, which was back in 2012. Um, and he set up, in, in essence, a, a VC, 
which is called Oxygen Ventures, mm. who have now been the backing group behind Newsmodo. Uh, realistically, without that support, we would never have been able to develop a site, um, build a network of journalists, have a full-time team of staff to really carry the vision through. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that VC, Oxygen Ventures, um, I hosted last week an event that they put on called The Big Pitch, where mm-hmm. uh, startups here in Melbourne and their applicants, are, I believe about 300 from all around the country, applied to pitch for up to $5 million in funding. So they're very committed to supporting grassroots um, startups here in Mm. Australia and I've been very fortunate that I was the first cab off the rank for them. And so finally, think, project yourself into three years' time. Describe what Newsmoto is doing, describe what you're doing and describe the industry landscape and how Newsmoto fits in. (laughs) <laughs> if I had a <laughs> such an easy question to finish yeah, up with, pretend it, you've I'll just got bring a out my <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say I'll bring that out now. I've just got it uh, on my desk here. I'll have yeah. a gaze into it. Look, I think the one thing that we can be sure of is that things are going to continue to evolve. Uh, there's never been a faster moving time in in the industry. And I was listening to Carl Stefanovic just this morning on the radio, and for a guy that is so well considered. Uh, His career certainly you would say has been a successful one. Even he's saying, look, in the next two years, I'm going to be diversifying. We're all going to be looking for what's next. And I think that what's next is really going to be critical to where we all try and place ourselves in the shifting sands of the industry. We believe that that will be across digital. Um, Branded content is something that all, uh, if not all, most um, big businesses are really looking at closely now. Um, Advertising is changing at a rate of knots. And I think right now we're at this really interesting tipping point where brands are really understanding that people are sick of having ads shoved down their throat. They Mm. want something that's more engaging, more entertaining and more transparent. So that provides a real opportunity for great journalists and great writers to step in there and say, well, I can create that content. And and so that's where we see Newsmodo heading in, in that direction whilst keeping our roots. And you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, why news? Well, we're very much grounded in our roots of news. So we have almost two streams that we see um, for now and who knows in three years' time. But for now, that's the two directions that we're very much pursuing. Real editorial news, quote-unquote real, and then the branded news as well. Mm, Wonderful. Okay, so change is inevitable and the ability to adapt is vital. And I guess being open to opportunities is really the way to succeed in the next couple of years kind of thing. Well, fingers crossed. Hey, (laughs) here we are on a podcast. So... (laughs) You know, I didn't think I'd be getting that opportunity a couple of years ago when I was sitting in a newsroom in a television network. So things change very dramatically, very fast, and it's all about embracing that change. Pretending that you know everything is not going to do yourself or those around you any favors. So you don't know what you don't know. You've just got to keep learning and absorbing and um, and hopefully by being open to that change, um, we'll all be best positioned to... Uh, to enjoy what is around the corner. Great. And if people want to find out more about Newsmodo, where do they go? Yep. So we're at newsmodo.com. 
and they'll find there's a couple of emails there. They can email us directly, uh, speak to the editorial team. We're always available, and we'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Raquel. Thanks again. Well, that was really interesting, Val. Like, I think it's, it's fantastic that there are so many avenues open for freelancers to find work now. It's not just about pitching directly, but you can look for the work in other ways. Yeah, that's right. I think that, you know, that as that, that word disrupted, the, the place is being, the industry is being disrupted by not just Newsmodo, but similar services. Um, but let's move on to our um, app pick for the week. And I discovered an app called Story Spark. Now, I love apps because, you know, I play with my iPhone all the time and I download probably way too many apps. But I thought that this was interesting because it gives you story prompts. Now, if I'm deep into my writing and I've got the flow happening, I don't really need a story prompt. But sometimes when, you know, I'm, well, maybe I'm just procrastinating, really. Procrastinating. <laughs> yes. But I do like occasionally getting something, get you know, something to push me out of where my current state of mind is and prompt me to perhaps write something completely different, which may not end up at all in what I'm writing, but it starts me, you know, it gets me going and it gets me flowing again yeah. by putting some words together. Do you ever use writing prompts? No, I, I used to use them. I think when I first started out writing fiction, I used to use writing prompts um, because I was trying to develop a, a habit of writing. So I, I, had a, I was given a little box of cards and on each of them was a writing prompt, open a drawer, you know, and what's inside, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and I, I used to use them just to kind of like, I'd write 500 words based on a writing prompt just to kind of get things, you know, going. Um, so I don't use them so much anymore just simply for the fact that I'm usually working on something. Like I've usually, yeah. as you say, I'm already, I've got something underway. Um, I don't know if I was to start a new novel or something like that, maybe I would sit down with, 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 uh, something just to kind of get me started. I'm not sure, but yeah, but I, I, you know where I do use them? I use them in my writing group at the school. Oh yes. I use them a lot. I give them an opening sentence and then they write me, you know, But when you, when you were using them and you wrote your 500 words, what did you do with the 500 words? Did you um, keep them? Or I, did you... Yeah, I did. I've got files of them um, in different places. Some of them I used as the basis of short stories and things like that. Like some of them would turn into into short stories. I had a few short stories published in like Women's Day and um, a couple of the other weekly magazines were running a lot of fiction at that time. So I did have short stories published in those based on, you know, bits and pieces of those. Um, but yeah, mostly they're just exercises. I think mm. a lot of the stuff that you write like that never actually becomes something. Yeah. But it is always going to be there as the basis. It just is practice. It's like yeah. anything. You've got to get those muscles going. Yeah, it's just it's just unblocking some cre a creative flow, really. Yeah, that's exactly right. What I've been doing recently, um, regular listeners will know that I bought a typewriter, like oh, an yes. old-fashioned typewriter recently, which I'm um, having a lot of fun with. So when I'm using these story prompts, I actually type them out on my typewriter and um, pretend I'm an old-fashioned writer or, uh, you know, Hemingway wannabe, and, um, and I proudly look at my beautiful typewritten sheet at the end and then I scrunch it up and I throw it away. Well, you know, often that's all they're, you know, really, that's all they're good for. But, yes. you, know, you know what, you can write those 500 words and out of that 500 words you might get one sentence that you love. Yeah. And it's worth it for that one sentence. Absolutely. Yeah. So what is our working writer's tip? This week, uh, well, this the working writers tip. It kind of like comes on, a, uh, follows on a little bit from Newsmodo, but sort of not. 
Um, it is a question that comes up a lot, and it is how many pitches should I send to an editor at once? How many stories should I pitch within the one email is basically, you know, yeah. where, where I take So we're that. talking about pitches as in P-I-T-C-H-E-S, not pictures as in photos. <laughs> no, uh, so, and we're talking feature stories for magazines, newspapers, online, etc. Um, so, the, yeah, that's a question that comes up regularly. How many should you send at once? So, Val, how many do, would you send? I think it depends on your relationship with the editor. If you're brand new, you've never dealt with that editor before, I would only send one and at max two. Because what you want to do, you don't want to send five all in one go. You want to send one or two just to get their feedback and then you can tailor all of your other pictures uh, according to what then you learn that that editor likes more of this and less of this, that kind of thing. I think once you actually have a relationship with an editor, go nuts, send five on one go. I know some freelancers who do that and all five get commissioned, but I wouldn't suggest that you do that if you don't have an existing relationship with an editor because it's a bit overkill. What do you think? Well, to be honest with you, even though I have very good relationships with a lot of editors and do it with a lot of people, I still only send one or two at once. Um, reason for that is that I try to, I, I'm, I'm getting a lot more discerning in my old age <laughs> and I just really try to only send the stuff that I think is really, really good. I mean, mm. I know that, you know, everybody think, I mean, I could sit here and write you about 10 pictures now for a different magazine and probably one of them would be really worth following up. And so I just send that one. Mm. I don't, I don't send all the others. I might put the others in a drawer and think about them and, and make them into a really great pitch a bit later on. Um, but I also think having been on the receiving end as a features editor, mm. I, I hated getting 10 ideas from one. It looked to me, when I got 10 ideas from one freelancer, it just looked to me like they were sitting there like writing down the first thing that came into their mm -hmm. head and sending it to me. And half the time that's what it looked like. Right. Um, and so, yeah, no, I didn't like it. I would rather that you would send me one amazing idea than 10 half-baked ideas. But that's what, yeah, of course, that goes without saying. So my suggestion, of course, if you are going to send five, they need to be all five quality ones. Don't send just two lines to the, to to the editor. No, yeah. No. They need to be fully researched yeah. and, you know, a proper brief for every single one, definitely. Yeah, that's right. So that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. What are you up to? Well, I'm, well, I'll be heading back down to the south coast of New South Wales tomorrow, back to my little smoke, back to my <laughs> stomping ground. Um, and, yeah, I'm just going to be I've, – I've just finished up the structural edit of book two of my series and I'm just kind of working through that at the moment just to make sure I've got all my timeline in the right order, um, sending that off, and then I will start book three. Wow, you'll be busy. You're busy. I'm, this is a very busy year. Mm. I, mean, I knew when it started it was going to be busy, but I, I don't think I really had an appreciation for quite how busy it was going to be. But it's it's good. Like I, I think the thing is, I I'm loving the project. I, I'm having such fun writing the books. Yeah. That um, it is. It doesn't feel like work. You know, it's busy and it's a little bit stressful, but it it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like amazingly good time, really. Um, and what about you? I'm looking forward to getting stuck into the book My Salinger Year by Joanna Rakoff because um, uh, it, now that book is about uh, Joanna's year at a literary agency that represented J.D. Salinger. So I think it's going to be fascinating just to Fantastic. have a look at the behind the scenes because then I'm – so Joanna's based in New York and I am speaking to her next week and we'll include her as a writer in residence in a future uh, episode Fantastic. of So You Want to Be a Writer. So I'm keen to do that. I'm also thinking of names, not names for characters of my protagonists, but – 
The Australian Writers' Centre is getting um, some new residents. We actually have a fish tank, so we'll be getting uh, quite a number of new fish. We've already named the shrimp. Um, we've got uh, Bonnie and Bruce. If you, and you, if the theme continues, and because the other shrimp's names are Yippee, Kai, Yay, and Mother. Um, <laughs> Some people will get the uh, reference. And um, so, yes, by next week we'll have some uh, fish and we're gonna need, they're going to need some names. Um, but that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Where can we find you, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontate.com. You'll find me at valeriekoo.com. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast thank you so much for your reviews on itunes if you can take 30 seconds to review um review the podcast on itunes we'd be really grateful because that really helps us in our rankings and we really appreciate all of you who've done that so far um, if you have any questions or you want us to address a particular issue in our working writers tip email us at podcast at writerscenter.com.au and until next time thanks for listening bye